This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, all right. Welcome. Another edition of the Disability Law Show. So good to have you along for the ride. Tune in for over, uh, well, just about the next hour. You will learn a lot for sure and will give you several opportunities to write down the contact information to reach out to either Martin, who's covering things, of course, on the West Coast and Savannah as well, and uh, further east as we are pretty much across the country, both radio and TV. Reaching out anytime, toll free, obviously, one 821 5900 Email is help at disabilityrights.ca or simply disabilityrights.ca. We'll jettison you over to the firm website. Lots to cover on the show today, guys. Emails are piling in, and we're going to get to our main topic in just a bit called Three Common Misconceptions About Quote-Unquote Total Disability. Loving this topic. But, Martin, I know you got something to, uh, to get us warmed up with, pal. What do you got going on over there? Yes, thanks, John. So I have, you know, it's somebody who calls, uh, contacted us this week who works as a or used to work as a software technician and usually we get contacted by people who have had their claims denied or they're in the process of an appeal process uh, something like that Th- this person contacted me and she had been approved by the insurance company uh, the insurance company accepted that she was disabled from working in her own occupation as a software technician And then the change of definition came around. And for those who do not know, most group policies would have a change of definition. So there would be two definitions for total disability. The first one would be that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. And then that definition changes. Then you have to prove that you cannot work in any other occupation based on your transferable skill sets, meaning your education, your training, and your experience. And for most policies, it would be two years own occupation and then everything beyond that would be the any occupation phase. So this uh, lady is approaching the own, sorry, the change of definition and the insurance company had said to her, well, they're not denying the claim. So the change of definition came around and she's been with our benefits now for two months because the insurance company said to her, we're not denying your claim. We're just not paying it at the moment. We're investigating it further now we've spoken about this many times in the past as to what these policies are they're peace of mind policies which means peace of mind contracts you purchase these policies to provide you with peace of mind should you be unable to work that you would have this financial security and that means that the insurance company has a duty to treat your claim in an objective and fair manner and also in a timely manner so this insurance company accepted that this lady was disabled from working in her own occupation and as opposed to just making a decision on whether she can or cannot work in another occupation they're saying to her well we're investigating and she's been out without money now for a few months which puts her obviously as anybody listening to this can understand in a very difficult financial position which is also impacting her mental health which doesn't help her in terms of getting better with respect to her conditions having some improvement, hopefully to be able to return to work in the future. And every time that she reaches out to this insurance company, they're telling her, well, we're investigating. We're not quite sure what it is that they're investigating. They may have been reaching out to the doctors, but they have a duty, as I've said before, to adjudicate these claims in a timely manner. And knowing that the change of definition was coming up, that should have been done at that time. She should not be in this position where she's simply in limbo now. 
there's no denial, but there's also no approval. And nobody can say to how long this investigation is going to last. And as I said, we don't generally get too many of these types of inquiries, but clearly it puts her in a very difficult position because when we pursue legal claims, it's normally once there has been a denial. This is, there is no denial, but there's also no approval. So she's without benefits. And I think we can actually start treating this as a denial. So the advice to anybody out there is if you are in a position where the insurance company is simply just may have approved your claim, but they're not denying it and they're not approving it, but they're also not paying you your benefits, reach out to us because it may be that you want to put a timeline to the insurance company and say, by this date, you're going to make a decision. Either you're going to approve my claim or you're going to deny my claim. Hopefully approve it, of course, but you need to make a decision because it is not, it's not just and it's not reasonable to leave somebody who is disabled and now not getting your money hanging around like that, just waiting for a decision. That is not abiding by the insurance company's duties to their insureds, meaning to people making claims under the terms of the policy. It's an ongoing thing. As I said, we don't get too many of these, but they do pop up every now and again. And if you have a situation like this, or if you know somebody else, like a family member who has a similar situation, by all means, reach out to us. Because as we say all along, we do free consultations. We can review your situation with you and then discuss with you what options are available to you. Savannah, what do you think, pal? Yeah, I completely agree with Martin, and I've seen those before as well. And I, I typically... <clears throat> historically, when people contact me about these kinds of issues, it, it's actually not during this period, the transition uh, between uh, um, own occupation to any occupation or when the person gets benefits, but it's at the beginning of the process when the person first applies. And they say, well, look, a month has passed, two months, three months, what do I do? And my advice has been very similar to Martin's. I, if I deem that to be unreasonable, and, and you know, the facts of each case are somewhat different. It depends on complexity, depends on what the situation is and all that. But when I tell somebody, no, this is unreasonable, and this person says, okay, well, what do I do in that situation? After I've tried, you know, they tell me I've tried to reach out to the insurance company and I'm not getting a response, or they're telling me it's still in process, is I tell the person that either you or me on your behalf writes to the insurer, the adjuster, and says, you have until X date to provide your position. And if at that point, you either don't provide your position or say no, I will treat it as a no. So even if they don't provide their position, I've now put it in writing to them or the person has put in writing to them that we will treat that as a denial. Down the road, they're going to have a tough time coming back saying, oh, we didn't know or you started the claim prematurely, etc." because we've now imposed a denial. So people ask me, well, how long do you give them? Well, it, again, it depends on the facts. Sometimes I give them a week. Sometimes I give them a month. Typically, it's about a week or so, depending again on, on the facts. But I think you have to impose these kinds of deadlines. On the other hand, you also want to be reasonable as well, which is why we tell people, don't take what Martin and I say here and just run with it. Give us a call or contact us because you don't want to be in a situation where you are deemed to be acting unreasonable and that may prejudice you down the road. It doesn't cost anything to get the advice from us. So might as well just let us know that you're struggling with this, run the facts by us, and we'll tell you what we think you ought to do. At that point, you can decide if you want to do it or not, but at least you'll have us as a sounding board and, and we can give you the advice that you need. Guys, reaching out anytime, as mentioned off the top, toll-free, 821 
5900disabilityrights.ca. And for more questions, you can ask them anonymously through your uh, smartphone or your computer, whatever, mydisabilityquestions.com. Let's get into this, guys. we got uh, some time here with this uh, first segment. Three common misconceptions about total disability. Can't underscore the importance of this particular portion of the show. If you're ever faced with this, you might hear that term eventually. You've got you've to gotta know what it means. The term, Savannah, totally disabled, means a complete inability to function in any capacity. What? How about that one? Right. So let's highlight the title of the topic, which is misconceptions. Mm -hmm. This is a misconception, and it is probably, I think, one of the main ones, if not the biggest one, in long-term disability, where people think that the term totally disabled or total disability means that you are, in effect, catatonic, brain dead. You don't have your limbs. I mean, you know, something catastrophic, and it's as far away from that as possible the real definition or the real way we treat this term. I don't know what the genesis is, where this term came from. I assume it came from some insurance company and some people up there who decided that, you know, this is a fantastic way to confuse people and confuse doctors. If we put the term totally disabled, many people, doctors out there, psychologists, other people will say, okay, well, there's no point applying even because you're not totally disabled. Well, John, if I tell you I totaled my car, you think, I destroyed my car. It's a write-off. There's, yeah, I mean, and and, you know, here's the interesting thing. And Martin, this is this this is actually interesting. Uh, You know, when we've done car accident type of cases before, and somebody told us they've totaled their car, and the insurance company said your car is totaled, that's exactly what the insurance company means in in you know the regular vernacular, right? Total means it's completely done. It's destroyed. And yet, long-term disability insurance companies don't take that to mean total disability in the way that we mean total. What total disability means in the context of long-term disability means that for the first two years under a standard policy that you cannot perform the essential tasks of your occupation, of your job. It doesn't mean that you can't go to the gym. It doesn't mean that you can't walk your kids to school. It doesn't mean you can't go shopping. It depends on the facts of the case. If you are suffering from anxiety or depression and those disable you, you're unable to perform the essential tasks of your occupation, but you can go to the gym because the doctor says that's going to make you better and you go to the gym it doesn't mean that you're not totally disabled under the term of the policy meaning total disability is meant in a different context when we're talking about total disability it simply means can you do your job really at the end of the day and if the answer is no you can't for this reason or for that reason well guess what you are totally disabled under the policy again so long as your doctors or whoever's treating you confirms in writing that in fact they believe you are functionally unable to perform those tasks. So this is really important to understand that if you are confused about what total disability means because of the word total, don't be confused. Total doesn't mean total when it comes to total disability. (laughs) Did I make things more confusing? Probably. But (laughs) if you are denied on that basis, you should automatically be calling us. Because the only answer, the only question you have to answer is, can you do your job? Or if you're beyond the two-year mark, where the test changes is, can you do any occupation for which you're suited for? If the answer is no, if you cannot, well, you are most likely totally disabled as it pertains to your long-term disability policy. 
Guys, we'll take that short break. Got to dive into some emails. Got a bunch already lined up, so you can always send one along as well, maybe up here on this show or a future show. It'll get answered regardless. one 821 5900 to reach out. Help at disabilityrights.ca. So stand by. Lots more of the Disability Law Show is coming right up. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. And back at it, Disability Law Show. You can reach out anytime. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. Martin and his team, Savannah and his team, always ready to answer those emails and the phone calls. Toll free, 1-855-821-5900. Okay, let's get into this. We are talking about uh, lots of good things here. Um, we're talking about totally disability, right? Main three uh, common misconceptions, rather, um, Savannah. We got to number one, the term totally disabled. Brilliant piece of marketing by the insurance company. Doesn't mean what it says, so always reach out to the guys to get a, uh, another breakdown as we cover that. In the first part of the show, number two, the insurance adjuster is the sole determinant of whether a claimant is disabled from working. That doesn't sound right. You know, we, we've, we hear this many times from people because it's like this David Goliath situation. It's, it's this poor person who cannot work. They've now made a claim to the insurance company. They've got their doctor's support. They did everything that they thought they should be doing pertaining to the, um, the provisions in the policy, which is a contract. And then the insurance company says, no, you're not disabled. And then they feel, what can I do here? Because the insurance company, ultimately, they're the ones who have the money. They're the ones who ultimately will pay the benefits. So they are making the decision. Well, in theory, I suppose that's true. The insurance company does make the decision here. But does it mean that they've made the right decision? Um, is it does the buck ultimately stop with them in terms of that decision no they may make decisions as to whether you can get your benefits whether it should be approved or not but remember that when you made that claim it was because you have the opinion that you cannot work your doctor supports you it may be that your doctor said to you you have to stop working now because you can no longer perform the duties of your own occupation as uh, Sir was just discussing you are totally disabled then the insurance company will review those um, documents that you've submitted, and they may say, well, we, we consider your doctor's opinion, but we consider many other things as well, and therefore we have decided that you're not disabled. If that happens, that is when you get in contact with us, because if this doesn't end up in a legal claim, there are other ways to try and get the insurance company to pay you the benefits that you owe by getting us involved in this, but ultimately... If you do pursue a legal claim, it may end up in front of some third party who makes a decision on this. But when we get involved, we often get these cases resolved because you have somebody fighting for you. You have a lawyer who is acting on your behalf. You no longer need to deal with the insurance company. And just because you think that the insurance company and their claims managers or adjudicators have the final word, they don't. Because a legal claim will give you some leverage to fight the insurance company's decision. And that is what we do on a daily basis. Get into another one, guys. Number three is this. Once the insurance company denies benefits, there is no further recourse. Uh-uh. No way. Exactly. No way. Uh, in fact, what the insurance company is interested in doing, number one, is making you think that there is no recourse. Uh, and, you know, appeals accepted, of course, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the idea being that uh, the insurance company understands that there is 
a perceived power imbalance. Now, there is in fact a power imbalance so long as you are on your own. If you're on your own, there is this power imbalance because the insurance company doesn't just have all this money, but they have expertise in this area of law, right? That's what they do. They're in the business of making money by denying claims, collecting premiums and denying claims. So you feel like it's hopeless. There's no point. And then what they do brilliantly is in that letter that they send you, they throw you a lifeline or what you perceive to be a lifeline. The last paragraph or two paragraphs in that letter say to you, look, there is this process of appeal, right? This is going to be your savior. Just come to us with new documents, with another report, with something else that can persuade us, and we'll reconsider this. And we see a lot of people fall into that trap, right? Because they think, oh, the insurance company is trying to help me somehow by giving me this out. No. What they're trying to do is keep you in shackles. And how do they do that? They give you this route, they give you this option, which you think is the only recourse, the only valid recourse. Meanwhile, as you're using it, they're controlling you. They're controlling your options. They're putting you in a maze, like a mouse, right? Running through a maze. Our job is to show you that this is a maze that leads nowhere. It leads nowhere because at the end of the day, you are asking the exact same people who denied you in the first place to reconsider the decision where they have absolutely no incentive to reverse course. If the whole issue, the, the whole purpose of them denying you is to save money so they don't have to pay you, so you go away, how is that any different when they consider your appeal? Except that now when you've appealed, they've given you some hope, and now they take it away by denying you again and again and again. And I don't think, John, that a week passes without someone contacting me and telling me that we have to talk about this on the show, except that we always talk about this on the show. And every other show that we do, whether it's a TV show or the, this radio show or another radio show, we talk about the fact that these appeals, in our experience, are absolutely fruitless and useless. What is the other option? Well, the other option is to break through that maze. And it's much easier than you think. And we do this day in and day out. And here's what it is. It's us starting a legal process, a legal claim against the insurance company. Because once we start that, something happens internally within the insurance company that you as an individual out there are not aware of it now moves to a different department inside the insurance company. There is a different adjuster assigned to the file. Now there is a defense lawyer assigned to the file. Here's the thing about defense lawyers, lawyers that either work in-house for insurance companies or that insurance companies uh, hire externally. Mm -hmm. They cost money. And what do insurance companies hate more than paying out benefits? They spending. hate paying their lawyers. They hate spending money on their lawyers. It, they bleed money that way. How do I know? Because I used to work for them. I used to work, and not a week or a month would go by when I used to work for them almost 20 years ago when I would not get a phone call from one of the adjusters that was giving me instructions telling me, Sivan, when are you resolving? When are you settling this case? I don't want to pay you anymore. Yeah. So my point is this. If we go after them and we start that legal process, we are instigating something now that costs them a lot more money. And now that gives them an incentive to come to the table and talk turkey. But again, it has to be the right lawyer and the right law firm on the other side because if they don't think you have the right lawyer... They're going, to con they're going to continue playing the game and they're going to continue uh, stringing you along. And I've seen cases, I think we talked about this either last week or a week before, where some people have these cases go on for years and years and years. And long-term disability case should not take years and years and years to resolve. Absolutely not. So, so again, there is recourse here. The recourse is to get the information you need to get us to help you. This is what we do. Let us go after the insurance company. Let us help you and let us take this burden off your shoulders.
want to get to this guy, uh, this uh, this note, rather, uh, Savannah. I want to mention as well, disabilityrights.ca, that website. That will give you links to our long-running TV show as well. You can catch that pretty much across the country. It's good stuff, similar to what we do here on the uh, on the radio. Uh, from a loyal viewer, says, can you deal with this issue on your weekly show? When a person is declined benefits, the insurance company will encourage you to appeal. Two, three, four appeals can follow. <laughs> And once a two-year period passes, they will wash their hands of you, and you are out of luck. Since the appeal is a joke and not independent, can an argument be made that the insurance company is fraudulent, leading a person to appeal running out the clock? The appeal goes to the same person, and I think it would be hard for an insurance company to show they seriously reviewed new info that was provided. Wow. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so I've got, I do want to say something before going to that question, uh, answering it. In BC specifically, in 2012, the Insurance Act changed with the, the limitation period. That's the time frame within which you can start a uh, legal claim. Changed from one year to two years. Hmm. And the reason that was done is insurance companies didn't have to, number one, advise you as the person making the claim, that there is a limitation period that is running. In other words, the time frame from when you have to start the legal claim starts to run from a specific date, and that may be from the date that the claim was denied. Pre-2012, it was one year, and insurance companies didn't have to tell people about the limitation period. The one-year time frame, sounds long, but it isn't, can run out fairly quickly. And I would have people in my office crying because they, in good faith, engaged in these appeal processes. And they would run out two, three, a year goes by, a year and a half goes by, the insurance company says, oh, sorry, you've done your three appeals now, this is our final decision, we're not paying your claim. Then they think, okay, well, I trusted that process, now I'm going to speak to a lawyer to see what my options are. And we would have to be in a unfortunately, tell this person, sorry, you cannot pursue a legal claim now because that time frame has expired. And that goes to the heart of this question. So some of these cases ended up in front of judges in BC, and the judges couldn't change the law, but they did comment here and there that maybe the legislature should step in because it doesn't seem right that insurance companies can do this. So then in 2012, the act changed, and the limitation period is now two years. So it's was a year before, it's now two. And insurance companies must now tell you that there is a limitation period that runs. And it should tell you, refer you to the actual Insurance Act where the limitation period is discussed. So going back to this question, this was considered as to what is the result of engaging in these appeal processes and how it may affect people if they do it in good faith and then the time runs out. Will it be deemed to be fraud i think that's a very strong word uh it, it would be have to be done on a case-by-case -case basis because insurance companies will look at this and say well we're offering you this opportunity but it goes back to what sivan was saying earlier on when you engage in this process you're not trying you're not appealing to an independent entity you're appealing to the same insurance company yes they may say to you we're having a different department review your claim, but it is the same entity. They're all paid by the same employer. They all work for the insurance company. It's not an independent process. And sometimes, yes, it may work, but for many, many, many people, it doesn't work. And that's where they end up with the legal claim. So in a situation like that, 
if a person has gone to the two or the three or the four appeals even, and they're still denied, and they then step into a legal claim, we will look at what was done during that process, during the appeal process, each of them. I've seen cases where during the appeal process, there was even a recommendation made that the claim should be approved, and somehow it was overruled, and then it was denied, and the person just engaged in a further appeal process. And almost two years down the line, they're still without money. Luckily, they then speak to us because you don't want to miss that limitation period because if it runs out, you probably don't have a recourse to pursue a legal claim. And just one comment further on what we had discussed earlier. The legal claim ultimately gives you leverage, which people don't always understand. You engage in this appeal process. As I mentioned before, it's the David versus Goliath scenario. You're asking some entity to pay you money, but you have no leverage on them. You're simply asking them. But when you engage in a legal claim, you now have leverage. Because I can tell you the insurance company also doesn't want to be in that legal claim. Yeah. They want to get out of it. So you have now taken some control where you can negotiate with the insurance company and you have some power. Going back to does the insurance company only make the decisions here? No, it's not just them. You can make decisions here as well. But you need to do the right thing. You need to contact us and consider what options are available to you. And if a legal claim is one of them, consider that very carefully because it gives you leverage, it gives you some power. And ultimately, we all know that if a legal claim doesn't resolve through some settlement or discussion, it may end up in front of uh, a judge who makes a decision. And then it's that judge's decision. And it could go your way or the insurance company's way. So insurance companies know that too. They don't want that process. So it helps to have these discussions when you have your claim denied to see what your options are and to consider what the insurance company should have done during these appeal processes if you did engage them in them. And we can look at, in those instances, whether there would be a potential for claiming damages as well. So, Van, last comment before we break. What do you think about all that as well? I obviously agree with everything Martin said. One thing to keep in mind is when we start the legal claim, we get a copy of the insurance company's file. And sometimes we see some comments in there whether it's through the first denial or uh, during the appeals, which we can then use against them. That's something you as an individual cannot get unless there is a legal claim that started because under the legal process, the procedural rules that we have, they must give us a copy of their entire file. And we find a lot of goodies in there that we can then turn around and use against the insurance company on your behalf. Love it, guys. We'll take a short break and into uh, Mark's email first. Mark, stand by. Thank you so much for contributing to the show today. Uh, in that regard, you can do the same. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number in each and every time, one 821 5900 Returning with lots more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. Thanks for hanging in, reaching out. Help at disabilityrights.ca. You can go to mydisabilityquestions.com. That is a free and anonymous place to ask your questions. Searchable database. That's how it works. So your question may be in there already. Saving you some time. And if you want to uh, observe and look at free and easy, concise notes about LTD, gather more information. It's not legalese. It's plain English, easy to use, ltdfaq.ca. You can check that as well. we got lots of uh, different options. And the phone number, again, one 821 5900 Mark, you're up, pal. Thanks for the email. It says, guys, I've been on LTD since 2021, and the change of definition date on my claim is coming up next week. 
I've asked my disability insurer to provide me with a copy of my LTD policy to see if there is a requirement for a cost of living adjustment. As my monthly disability payment hasn't changed to date, my insurer tells me it can take 30 days or more to provide this, and I requested it over a month ago, but still haven't received the policy. Is there a limitation date that I should be concerned about if the policy does in fact require a cost of living adjustment to be provided? That's uh, it's an interesting question, Mark. Uh, so let's parse that out. First of all, you're mentioning that uh, the change of definition date is coming up. So just so everyone is on the same page, what Mark's referring to is what uh, Martin had talked about before and we speak about often here, which is under uh, standard LTD policies, most LTD policies, to get LTD, long-term disability, for the first two years, you have to demonstrate with the help of your doctors that you cannot perform the essential tasks of your own occupation. Beyond the two-year mark, there is that line that you have to cross to get LTD. And for that, you have to demonstrate that you cannot perform the essential tasks of any occupation for which you're suited for by training, education, or experience. Typically, we uh, use commensurate income as sort of uh, the guide here. Can you essentially f uh, work in a position that will pay you what your LTD is effectively paying you? That's really the question here. Uh, it's not as simplistic as that, but that's really the guide here. Now. Right. Mark is asking about a, a cost of living adjustment. And of course, you know, we're all cognizant of inflation and what's going on out there. Uh, look, you have a contractual relationship, Mark. Everyone on LTD has a contractual relationship with their insurance company. That means that the relationship is governed by the contract, that the policy, the LTD policy is the contract. It defines the obligations of each party and it defines what benefits each party can derive or should be deriving from uh, the agreement. And so when we are looking at cost of living adjustments, uh, we call it COLA. Uh, we are looking to see if there is a provision there that allows you to get that. And so anyone out there can look in their policy, assuming they have their policy. Obviously, Mark is struggling to get that. But they're looking. If you look at the policy, you will see if there is or is not a provision that entitles you to that cost of living adjustment. If it does, if you do have it, it means you're entitled to it. And if you're not getting it, you should be talking to your adjuster and saying, why am I not getting this and I want this paid? I want a retroactive payment here and I want you to start paying me this adjustment. Now with Mark's situation, he's having difficulty getting a copy of his policy. There are different ways you can get a copy of your policy. First of all, you're entitled to it, okay? Uh, we operate in uh, BC, Alberta, and Ontario, and I can tell you all these provinces, as well as other provinces in Canada, have legislation that entitle you to your uh, policy, your insurance policy. And uh, what I suggest is this, Mark, go to your HR and your company, they may have a copy of the policy. If the adjuster is non-responsive, go above them, go to the manager. If they're not responsive, go to the ombudsperson, Google that person and tell them that you can't get a copy of your policy. Now we have a website that we've created, uh, I think it was last year, I believe, called ltdfaq.ca. Again, ltdfrequentlyaskedquestions.ca. And on it, you will see free memos, very short memos that we've written, our team has written and composed for the public, answering questions which are frequently asked. And one of them has to deal with getting those insurance policies. And in that little memo that you will find on our website for free, uh, you will be able to see what the legislation, what legislation, what law actually says that you're entitled to the policy. So when you are demanding a copy of your policy, you can actually point to that legislation and say, pursuant to this legislation, and here's the link to it, I want a copy of my policy. And they're going to give you a copy of the policy, Mark. Now, you're asking about limitation data you should be concerned about. Good question. Uh, 
my view, and Martin, we'll see what, what, what you think about this, is that it's probably a rolling limitation. And what I mean by that is that let's say that uh, you know you have two years from the date of when you are owed something to make a legal claim for it. So if you pass the two-year mark, I don't think that that disentitles you from making a claim for the additional monies that you were owed under this cost of living adjustment. I just think that, for example, if you were supposed to apply for it in January and you applied in February, well, then there's one month less that you're getting you know, that payment. That's how I would read it. But regardless, Mark, you should be assuming, since you're approaching the two-year mark, that if, in fact, you have that provision, you're entitled you know, for the full two years. And as every month, you know, the passes, you may be losing a little bit of money, but it doesn't, again, disentitle you to be get, you know, to, to be getting the last two years worth of increases. Uh, so that's the way I see it. Martin, I don't know if you have a different view on it. Um, it's a very good question. And it's a very difficult thing to give a response to because not all policies have cost of living allowances, this COLA that Saban was mentioning. Uh, it is if you do have a cost of living allowance, it means that you paid a little bit more of a premium because for many people, the benefit would remain the same every year. If you do have the cost of living allowance, it would mean that and in Mark's case, if he went on LTD in which is what he's saying in 2021, the cost of living allowance would have kicked in the next year. So it may have been the January or it may have been one year anniversary of the long-term disability, which throws him, I think, into 2022. So probably he does have some time. But going back to what Sivan was saying, is it a rolling limitation period? It's possible because every year it's, it's a new increase. I think it is very important. And this, is, this doesn't just go to this topic of cost of living allowances with respect to limitation periods. It goes to all of them. I have seen cases where on the face of it, the insurance company denied the claim or benefits may have ended two years or more than two years before, and then we get contacted by somebody. There may be ways to get around that. And this is why I don't want to tout this that much, but it is true. You need to know what you are doing as a lawyer working in this area to see whether there is a way around that limitation period, because there's case law on this. It is so fact-specific. So don't simply assume that if you missed a limitation period because the two years have expired, you do not have a claim. You must contact us because then we can look at the actual facts and circumstances. And I can tell you there's been a bunch of cases where we actually were able to still pursue a legal claim even after the two years have expired. But it is so fact-specific, so you must... And don't wait. Don't wait that long. I mean, in this case, I understand more. Maybe only have recently thought about having a cost of living allowance don't wait if you have a question if a claim has been denied before you think about engaging in the appeal process speak to us because it's necessary for you to know what the limitation period may be and you do not want to run the risk of having the limitation period expire because then it is going to be an uphill battle unless there is a way for us to get around it Mark, thanks, pal. I'm going to leave you the phone number as we uh, get into a break. Thanks for that email, and that is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Vinny, you are up next, but we got to slide into one last break. We'll go right, uh, right back to it right here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on.
This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here. Savannah Martin, Martin Willems. They are covering the hard stuff, and you want to reach out uh, pretty much across the country. You can do so. one 821 5900disabilityrights.ca on the web or email help at disabilityrights.ca as well. Vinny has promised here. He goes, says, guys have been on uh, STD and have recently been switched over to LTD long term. I've had no issues with the insurance company paying me for now. However, after switching to LTD, the insurance company told me they were going to apply for government benefits on my behalf. Any money awarded would uh, by the government would go to the insurance company. The insurance company dragged their feet on submitting the paperwork to the government, and my claim was denied. The required paperwork for my appeal was taken care of by myself. I recently received a large lump sum of money from the government. I'm worried that the insurance company will want me to send the entire sum to them. What should I do? What happens if my LTD is cut off while I'm still getting those government benefits? What do you think, guys? So this is uh, this is interesting, Vinny. Um, the fact that the insurance company has applied on your behalf, I'm assuming you're talking about CPP disability here. Uh, it's a bit unusual for them to have applied on your behalf. Typically what we see is insurance companies tell people that they need to apply for CPP disability. Uh, Sometimes they even hire outside uh, companies to help individuals apply. And the reason is not altruistic. The reason is because Mm -hmm. they get a deduction, a credit for any CPP disability that you will receive. Now, given the fact that you have been approved for CPP disability, assuming that's what it is, and that you received a retroactive payment, a lump sum payment, you will need to give that to the insurance company. You need to let them know. They're going to find out. And if they find out and you didn't give it to them and you just spend the money, first of all, they're going to demand it. Second of all, they're probably going to stop your LTD for a period of time equivalent to the amount of money they would otherwise be paying you that's equivalent to that CPP disability lump sum. So either way, they're going to get their money here. There's no point hiding it from them. You also don't want to do anything that's unethical or in breach of your obligations under your policy or common law. Uh, One thing to understand is that if you apply for CPP disability and you are approved, it means that the government has now deemed you, the federal government has deemed you disabled for the purposes of getting CPP disability, which arguably is as difficult or more difficult of a test to, to be able to overcome uh, and to meet than applying for long-term disability. This means that it's going to be that much more difficult for the insurance company to then cut off your benefits down the road on the basis of them saying that you're not disabled enough to get those benefits because the government has deemed you disabled. Remember, to get CPP disability, the test is that you must have a severe and prolonged disability that disables you from working. Uh, so that's really important to understand because that's, uh, speaks to your last question. What happens if your LTD is cut off while you're getting disability benefits from the government? Keep in mind that irrespective of whether you're getting disability benefits from the government or not, if your LTD is cut off and you're still disabled from working and you haven't done anything wrong and you haven't reached that age limit, which under most policies is age 65, not always, but in many instances, we can help you uh, uh get those benefits from the insurance company. We can have, we can help you go after the insurance company. In fact, it's not that we can help you. So we, we will go after the insurance company on your behalf and make sure that they pay you what you're owed. So that's my answer here is that don't hide this. If you receive this lump sum from them, it's not a bad thing that you received it. 
uh, and that if you are cut off or even if you're told that you may be cut off, you should be contacting us immediately so we can help you understand the situation and your options. Martin, give me your opinion, pal. What do you think? I find it interesting that Vinny says he's recently been switched over to LTD and even now at that time, so early on in the claim, in the process, the insurance company has requested and actually took steps to apply for CPP disability. So that tells me, remember when we speak about the change of definition, the two different definitions, mm -hmm. the first one is, for the most part, two years of the own occupation period. Um, and then it changes to that of any occupation after those two years, if it is a two-year timeline that we're talking about. And the insurance company is asking and proactively taking the steps to have applied for CPP, it must be that they also recognize that this is going to be severe and prolonged. So it's you don't often see that happen so early in the process. And you don't often see that insurance company actually is proactive in applying for the benefits themselves on behalf of somebody. So I, I agree with Sivan. If, if there were to be a denial on this claim, it's going to be very interesting as to having a look to see what happened in this claims file. Because as we've said before, when we pursue legal claims, we get a copy of the file and we can see everything that was happening in there, the discussions, the emails, the adjudication, the assessments. Um, and I think in many case, if there were to be a denial in the future, it's going to be a very interesting file to review. And you know what? There may be more than just the benefits that one can pursue. Let's get to Abigail. Guys, another email says, gentlemen, I was uh, diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis in 2020 and suffering with symptoms in late 2019. I'm on LTD, but do not feel that I'm ready to go back to work. Can my LTD adjuster make me go back to work? How about that one? Well, it sounds like Abigail is still being paid. So when she says, can the adjuster make her go back to work? The adjuster cannot do that. Uh, can the insurance company decide that they're going to deny the claim? they do that can they mandate or at least from their perspective say that she has to engage in a graduated return to work which should be approved by a doctor yes they can do that um, and if the doctor her doctor agrees then she can try that um, but if at this point like she's saying she does not feel that she is ready to go back to work and if she has a doctor support that she cannot go back to work then she should remain on LTD benefits if the adjuster then takes steps to, as I said before, try and deny the claim or try and mandate or force her to engage in a, you know, a graduated return to work program, that is something that should be discussed with the doctor. But again, reach out to us because we've seen many cases like that. Psoriatic arthritis can be, you know, it can be progressive as well. So it is something that doesn't just go away. Uh, if she has the extent, the restrictions and limitations that prevent her from working and that continues to remain the case she should remain on benefits and if there's a denial by all means get in touch with us savannah what do you think as we wrap it up yeah no i agree i you know i think the takeaway here is that insurance companies cannot force you to go back to work and they should not pressure you to go back if you are not ready and if your doctors say that you're not ready and if that happens in any way that the insurance company is even suggesting that they're going to cut off your benefits or force you into a situation that you are not comfortable with, you need to get in touch with us so we can tell you what needs to be done and how to protect yourself. 
And with that, guys, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for uh, participating in the show today. You can carry on and do so and have correspondence with Martin and his team or Savannah and his team. The phone number is an obvious way, toll-free, 1-855-821-5900. Email that we've been using and always use, help at disabilityrights.ca, and disabilityrights.ca is the firm website. And then finally, go to mydisabilityquestions.com for all other questions on your smartphone, your tablet, or your computer. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.